Hi, this is Kelly. And this is JJ. And it's Half Pint Happy Hour at Pop Crawl. These are short episodes where we check in, catch up, and answer questions to tide us all over until chaotic schedules die down and we can return to our full-length episodes. Yay! We missed you guys. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so how are you doing, Kelly? Um, I'm okay. It's been busy, as you know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, yes. it, It has indeed been busy, um... As far as my, um, why I, basically I'm the reason the Pub Crawl podcast has gone on hiatus because I uh, am in, not even in the middle, I'm just lost in, in book two in that <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing and I hate myself and it's due at the end of the month and I just don't have time for anything. I don't even have time to cook, you guys. I don't have time. I barely have time to shower. You don't want to be sitting too close to me these days because I'm just like, all I all I have time to do right now is go to the day job and write and I'm not really doing particularly well at either. Anyway, so on that <laughs> cheerful note, um, I decided for my own sanity and for Kelly's as well that we're just going to take a quick break and record mm-hmm. our our podcast like we used to we really miss doing this yeah uh we really we really do enjoy recording the podcast recording's the fun part the time consuming part is like everything else that goes with mm-hmm. it the production yeah. the editing the the um 99% of which JJ does so <laughs> so i just didn't have the extra time to spare um but sh- hopefully we can get these short ones out to you pretty quickly um, so this week we did have a couple of questions in that we thought we could answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you guys have any publishing related questions or even non-publishing related questions, we're willing to answer pretty much anything. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about fandoms or about movies or pop whatever. culture, whatever. Writing. If you guys want us to have an opinion on stuff, you can ask us to have them. Mm-hmm. But we did receive um, a couple of questions, so we thought we'd go ahead and answer them. Uh, maybe and then let, kind of let you know, give us our typical, usual reading and watching recommendations at the end. Mm-hmm. And then we'll sign off until we find time to p- record uh, again, which will be, I don't know, it doesn't feel like, it feels like forever. <laughs> There's no light <laughs> at the end of the tunnel for me right now. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. It's going to be fine. Okay. So do you want to read the question, <laughs> Kelly? Sure. Okay. Um, So this one that I have up right now is kind of a long one, but I think it's good. Uh, So this is a question that we got um, over email, and it's from a reader or listener named Megan. So Megan writes, "Um, I am in the process of writing my first book, and I have some concerns. Namely, I'm worried about how girls and women are represented in my book. My protagonist is male, the narrative is a close third person, and the setting, due to the cultural landscape at the moment, is predominantly male. I do have a few female characters in prominent roles and in others in tertiary roles, and I'm doing my best to make them and the rest of the cast as well-written and rounded as I can. But I know that as it stands now, my book wouldn't pass the, and I, I don't actually know how to pronounce her name, is it Bechtel? It's Bechtel, yeah. Bechtel. Bechdel Wallace. Mm -hmm. My book wouldn't pass the Bechdel test in that I don't really have situations where those females are talking amongst themselves with interacting without interacting 
with or referencing a guy. It does happen, but off screen, so to speak. I've tried rewriting the story several different ways to try and overcome this deficit up to and including trying to write this as a dual POV with my most prominent female character who, and trying to write my main character as female. But it always ends up detracting from the story I'm trying to tell. Given the close POV of the narration, I can't think of a natural way to have a conversation between my female characters that doesn't pertain to any male character without having my protagonist eavesdropping on them, which in my current plot structure would be super creepy, forced, and out of character. And I don't know how I would make such a change to a conversation plot relevant enough to include it. I want my book to have great and prominent female characters, but I also don't want to shoehorn characters and scenes in just so I can say that I have them. Do you have any advice for this situation? How do I know when I have enough and when I've gone too far? Can one even go too far in this matter? Is the concern that adding more could muddy or jeopardize the main story even a legitimate one? If I can't change my protagonist and his story enough to add more female characters, what are some good ways to bolster the female characters I have and to make them the best they can be? Okay, Megan. Calm down. (laughs) It's going to be okay. (laughs) So your question comes from a really great place because you are really concerned with, um, you know, trying to make your female characters well-rounded. And I would really argue that that is actually more important than having it pass the Bechdel test. That test, for people that don't know, um, was created by the comics writer um, and artist. Yes. Uh, her name is Alison Bechdel. She uh, wrote a comic called... I think it's Dykes to Watch Out For. Mm-hmm. Um, and she did Fun Home, too, didn't she? It's based on her her memoir. Fun Home, yeah. the musical, is based on her graphic novel memoir, which is really about her relationship with her father. And in many ways, I actually have not seen Fun Home. I mean, I love the music, but I haven't seen it. And I can't remember, actually, if the show passes the Bechtel-Wallace test. <laughs> So right there. So anyway, for those who don't know, the Bechdel-Wallace test, and it's actually, to give its full name, the Bechdel-Wallace test, because Wallace is the other person, other female, mm. um, in the conversation. But the comic strip was actually about these two female characters who were discussing a movie and how the movie had featured female characters and they just never had seemed to have a conversation outside the guy in the story. And... So the requirements to pass the Bechdel-Wallace test is simply that you must have two named female characters who talk to each other about something other than a dude. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's all the what the Bechdel-Wallace test is. It actually isn't a measure of anything. It's not mm-hmm. a measure of quality, and it's not a measure of whether or not something is objectively good. That's just another standard you can measure something against, but it doesn't actually say anything if your work does not pass the Bechdel-Wallace test. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you should be more concerned with making sure that your female characters are people, that they're well-rounded, that they're not stereotypes or tropes. And, you know, as long as you do that, as long as they are you know, reflections of real people with their own wants and desires and their own motivations and their own, you know, character arcs, however minor they might be. Um, I think that you can resist the problem that you're seem to be worried about, because it seems like what you're really worried about is the female representation in your book. And I think that even if there's only a little bit of female representation, as long as it's 
good representation as long as it treats your female characters with respect and um you know portrays them as as complex people with inner lives and you know emotional complexity then i think that you're fine because you know that's that's what we're really getting at here. I think, you know, a lot of what you're saying about trying to cram in these conversations or rewrite the whole book in order to accommodate this, you know, all this kind of like bending over backwards doesn't necessarily ensure that anything is going to get done other than there's going to be a conversation in which two female characters talk to one another. But I think that's a lot of work to do for, you know, a, a measurement that, as JJ said, isn't a, a measure of quality, yeah, I think, and you and you mentioned this too in your book that you know every time you try to, in your words, sort of like up the female representation in your book that it, it feels shoehorned in and it detracts from the story you're trying to tell. So just don't worry about it and write the story you're trying to tell, and within the confines and the framework of the story you're trying to tell, make sure that your female characters are well-rounded and human beings and have their own inner lives. Even if we are not in their point of view, or if, even if we're not in their head, as long as they're exist as human beings outside your protagonist, it should be fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are plenty of movies that are really great that do not pass the Bechdel Wallace test. And then there are plenty of other things that are objectively trash, but do pass the Bechdel Wallace test. So it doesn't, like I said, it is just one other thing you can measure your work against just as a litmus test more than anything else. And even Alison Bechdel herself never intended for this, quote, test, which the, I believe everybody, so like the media or other people came up with rather than her herself. I think she has said that, you know, I didn't intend this to be any sort of measure of feminism or anything. I just was making a comment. And, you know, and that's exactly it. Not every story needs to have every point of view. So focus on the narrative that you want to tell and uh, make everybody as human as possible. And I think you should be okay. I don't think, don't stress too much. Don't stress until, don't stress until things are finished, which is exactly where I am right now. So (laughs) (laughs) do as I say, not as I do. Pretty much. (laughs) All right. So we have any other things from Megan before we move on to our next question? No, I think that was it from Megan. Thanks for writing. Thank you. Okay, so this one is actually for me, I guess. So this question is from Sarah, and she said, I just finished listening to Winter Song on audiobook, and I noticed there were several times it switched from past to present tense. I thought it was really effective as it only happened during encounters between Liesel and the Goblin King, and it made the reader much more, quote, present with them in these moments. Can you discuss why an author might switch tenses this way and when it might be effective versus distracting in your opinion? Um, well, the jury's out on whether or not people actually find it distracting or effective. <laughs> what is it? Did they, is there feedback about that? Um, well, I, I just remember during like the copy edit process, my copy editor would make notes and she would mark, you know, tense change and I'd be, and she, with a question mark, like, <laughs> and I'd be like, no, no, this was intentional. So yes, the tense changes were intentional on my part. I wanted, um, a, I just wanted, I mean, first person in itself as a POV is pretty emotionally intimate. But there is kind of nothing more intimate than first person present in many ways because you don't have the luxury of hindsight to sort of analyze your thoughts and feelings. So I wanted 
those encounters between Liesl and the Goblin King to have that sort of emotional immediacy, like absolute immediacy. And to be completely honest, the first time that happened as I was drafting was a bit of an accident. I actually don't like first person present very much. We've mentioned this before in previous podcast episodes where Kelly and I sort of talked about how it can be distracting or when, when you're noticing the POV of a work, then it's probably not the right POV to be writing in. And most of the time I find first person present distracting. Um, but as I was writing, I found myself slipping into the first person present for certain scenes. And then I thought, you know, like that's actually kind of effective and sort of going for what I, you know, and it, it sort of gets at what I'm trying to get at. So I made that conscious decision. I also separated the sections where there is a tense switch. Uh, you know, I made them their own little sections as opposed to suddenly switching into mm-hmm. uh, present tense from past just to make sure. Um, but I, I'm sure there are people who've read it who are probably like, why is she doing this? Why doesn't she have a better copy editor? In my copy editor's defense, they tried to point it out to me, but I, I overruled them. I stepped those changes and I was like, nope, I want this to be in present tense. Um, but yeah, that's my rationale behind why and whether or not, um, you know, I think we can maybe link to our uh, POV podcast episodes about mm-hmm. why you would choose to write in one versus another and what works best for your story. And in my particular case, I just thought it served my story best. So that was the decision I made. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think those are the questions that we have for this week. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you guys have any questions, if you want to ask me about Winter Song, you can more than I'm more than happy to a- answer them. I will probably put up a spoiler wall if the questions are spoilery. But if you guys want me to answer Winter Song questions, I can do that. Again, we can answer writing craft questions, publishing related questions. Mm-hmm. You know opinions about life yep if you want to ask me about queries or agenting or whatever hit us up moana i just saw moana and it was amazing jj hasn't seen it yet I haven't, uh, I haven't seen but anything. i'll talk about it because it was great <laughs> <laughs> so then why don't we so, segue yeah. into our next yeah. segments um have you been reading anything since the last podcast i read the hate you give um which was incredible, as we all knew that it would be. Um, and I bought The Gauntlet, um, which I have not read yet. It's sitting on my shelf, and I'm really excited about that one. And allegedly uh, just came through in my library queue. So I've got some good reading ahead of me, but the one that I finished was The Hate You Give, and it was excellent. And the thing that I loved about it, too, we all knew that it was going to be um, an incredible book because um, the excerpt that I'd read, you know, the writing was phenomenal and I knew that it was going to be about this really important subject matter and, and Angie's writing and voice was just so clear and so compelling from, you know, minute one. Um, I was not expecting it to be as funny as it was. It's not a funny book by any means. It's, it's you know, it's devastating. I sobbed multiple times. Um, but there are these beautiful human moments of levity and, and tenderness. And it was just, I mean, it's just an exquisite book. I loved it. Um, and I think that star Carter's parents are my OTP now. I love (laughs) them. I think they're going on my list of like all my favorite fictional couples ever. Um, so yeah. What about you? Did have you gotten any reading done or just writing? Uh, 
I've, <laughs> I've had no life. Um, last month, which is before we went on hiatus, oh no, after we went on hiatus, uh, I went up to Gettysburg with Mark um, for a weekend. And I did get a lot of writing done that weekend, but I also read um, the last Tearling book, which I think is The mm. Fate of the Tearling by Erica Johansson. Um, it was interesting. I have mixed feelings about this series as a whole. I thought the first one was okay. The second one I could not put down, even as parts of it I was kind of going, What? What? <laughs> what? Um, so that was that. I, oh, I reread The Handmaid's Tale in, yeah, in preparation for, um, the the, miniseries. The miniseries. And I hadn't read that since college. I had, I actually didn't read it for college. I just happened to read it in college. So it was like 10 years ago now, I guess. And, which is interesting because I read it during the Bush administration, W's administration and then now I'm reading it under a different Republican administration and the book was actually written in 1985 uh, during the Reagan administration and it's just interesting in many ways how things have not really changed all that much although there are hilarious ways that this book is dated particularly the technology is extremely dated um, there's like everything is compu this compu that which is hilarious um there's also interesting sort of sexual politics that I think is much more um, kind of post-second wave feminism rather than kind of the third wave feminism that we are in, post-third wave feminism that we're in right now. So I thought that was kind of interesting to read. So in many ways it was dated, but yet still incredibly relevant. Um, so I reread that. That was really good. I am... At work, listening to all of Libba Bray's A Great and Terrible Beauty books on audio, which were also excellent. Um, I have I also haven't read these in a long time, so it's 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 kind of it's nice to sort of revisit this world. Um, so that's that's it on my end. I haven't read. I just don't have time. Like I literally, I yeah. have. I bought the Hate You Give the day it came out, and it's sitting on my shelf. Like, and mm-hmm. I'm looking at it. And I'm just like, I can't read it. I cannot yeah. read it until <laughs> until I turn in this stupid book. Oh man! So, any off any recommendations? Moana, for sure. I'm late to the to this one. Everybody else got to see it um, in theaters, of course, and I did not. But we bought it uh, when it came out on DVD recently, and I got to watch it with my daughter, who loved it, and I loved it. And it's one of those things where you know it's going to be great um, because you've heard so much about it, and you've heard the music, and you've seen you know still shots and all that. And then it's still there's like you worry that maybe it's going to be overhyped, and it can't possibly be overhyped. It's just a wonderful movie. I cried and cried, and it was lovely. Um, and so that, for sure. And then beyond that, have I been doing anything or watching? I don't think I have. I don't think there's been anything new with me. So, no, I think that's it. Uh, I am rewatching a uh, vision of Escaflone. Rather, I shouldn't be rewatching it, but I uh, <laughs> took like two hours over the weekend just to do anything but word. 
and um, so I've been rewatching The Vision of Escaflone partially for research for the book I'm not writing. <laughs> the book It's research for a book that I have not written, that I want to write, that I shouldn't be thinking about because I've determined this one. Um, but it's a little bit of research, and I'm kind of getting back into this sort of nostalgic phase for anime. The anime that I grew up with, not necessarily current anime, because I'm woefully behind on what is currently out uh, anime-wise. So that's what I watched over the weekend, but aside from that, I haven't really... I I mean, I do listen to podcasts. I don't know if I've... If there's anything oh, new yeah. that I was, I've been listening to. I um, Oh, there is a writing-related podcast uh, hosted by Mindy McGinnis called Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire that I've been listening to, and that's been pretty great. Um, the makers of the podcast Tannis and the Black Tapes also have a new one now called Rabbits that I've been listening to. Um, again, like I said, a lot of this is because I'm at the day job, so I can listen to all this while I'm there, mm-hmm. and I can't necessarily consume media in other ways. Um, I do listen to a lot of news, so I still listen to the NPR Politics podcast. Mm-hmm. NPR actually has a new podcast now out called Up First, which mm-hmm. is recorded at like 5 a.m. every morning, every weekday morning, and it gets into your feed by like 6 a.m. And that's they just cover all the news that happened the previous night. So... You know, things that they consider newsworthy and worth reporting on, they will talk about in their podcast, which is nice because I don't listen to the radio anymore. I only listen to podcasts. No, I know. Me too. Just terrible. Oh, my God. S-Town. Oh. <laughs> S-Town. S-Town is like your catnip. That is yes. like your thing. I struggled with S-Town. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting because I recognized right away that this was a Southern Gothic story. Mm-hmm. And, like, immediately, almost immediately, I was like, yep, I know exactly where this is going. And it, I think it took you a while, didn't it? It did. It, it actually took... I listened to the first episode, because when it came out, the day it came out, I actually texted you, and I was like, have you listened to this yet? And you were like, no, what is it? And I listened to the first episode that day, and then stopped because I was like, I have no idea what this is. I'm really uncomfortable. I, my problem was I couldn't tell what, how I was, how the podcast intended me to feel like what emotional response they were trying to invoke in me. I couldn't decide like how I was supposed to be feeling about it. So I was really uncomfortable after listening to that first episode and I was talking with some friends about it and they, um, did not pull out the Southern Gothic, which would have, you know, helped me right away, but they were listing other things. And someone was like, well, it's very Faulkner. It's like very, Mm -hmm. very Faulkner. And I was like, okay, yes. Like with that touch point, I can, you know, figure out what this is supposed to be. And so then, um, I listened to all the rest of it and you and I were kind of listening to it almost at the same day, um, kind of texting back and forth about it. And so once I had the Faulkner reference point, it it was better for me. Um, Southern Gothic is not my genre. Uh, I, Ice Town was impeccably done. It was great. Um, you know, it, it, it was wonderful and interesting and fascinating and John B, you know, as a human and as a character, um, was fascinating. Um, there was a lot still about it that I just, I don't know. I felt like 
like too voyeuristic. Like there were parts of it that were just too much for me and I felt really uncomfortable. (laughs) But yeah, it it is uncomfortably intimate in parts. Um, especially when we get to about his love life. Mm -hmm. I think that episode really did make me uncomfortable as well. That I was listening to and I was like, um, but as just like as a character, I, immediately I knew where I was. And well, mm-hmm. they end every episode with a rose for Emily. Mm-hmm. So I mean, if that didn't give it away as far as to what kind, what genre the story was in, um, but it is my jam. It is very much my jam. It's a very very close intimate portrait of the decay. I mean, all gothic stories are essentially about decay in many ways, and this isn't any different. It's about the decay of a southern town. Um, that is, it's, and it's just like the character of John B. You couldn't have come up with a more fictional sounding person. He is mm-hmm. a genius polymath clockmaker who constructs labyrinths in his backyard. There's like 64 ways to solve it and one null set. And it's just like all these interesting things. Like you wouldn't believe a person like this actually exists except as a work of fiction, but he was a real human being and it was, but I agree. I think parts of it were uncomfortably intimate and uncomfortably voyeuristic on this man's life and but I feel like in many ways that is somewhat characteristic of stories like this when it's a deep dive into somebody's life um and the one nitpick that I do have with S-Town like which really is kind of my nitpick with nonfiction overall is that it doesn't have any tidy endings which of course it doesn't this is real life but right I think this is le- it's it's far less pronounced than Serial, which of course, like Serial, like we couldn't expect a resolution to the first season of Serial, but we all kind of wanted one, and we yeah. all sort of expected one, or at least expected a stronger conclusion than the wishy-washy one Sarah Koenig came to. Yeah, um, and S Town isn't quite like that, but at the same time, it's it it brings up a lot of questions that it cannot possibly resolve because this is real right. life and the person about whom the podcast about whom the podcast is about it just can't answer any of these questions so because of that a lot of things are sort of left hanging that is just again the nature of life but it's also kind of the one flaw in the quote storytelling aspect of s town so no. but yeah i i listened to it all one day and i thought it was mm-hmm. i thought it was great i thought it was really excellent storytelling and i also think they did a smart thing by releasing all the episodes at once because if you had to do it week by week i don't think i would have listened to it no i don't think i would have either so yeah there's that what else did i talk about get out on my last on our last podcast because i did see that I think you did. I, you and I talked about it. I think you talked about it on the podcast, but I don't remember. But it's still on my list. I haven't. I have. I've read enough about it now that I know that I can handle seeing it. Um, I'm. I'm a, a huge chicken. I can't watch horror. Um, so I've read complete spoilers for it. I know every last thing that happens in the entire movie, um, which I have to do if I'm ever going to see horror. And of course, it sounds fascinating. And now I can't wait to watch it. And I'm sure I'll be terrified. But. Um, but that it will also be amazing uh, because, yeah. I I always try and tell people, like, if you're going to see Get Out while it's still in the theaters, I highly recommend that. And Jordan Peele says the same thing. It is sort of designed to be watched in a crowd, and particularly if in a crowd of 
not white people. Right. There is an amazing call and response that happens when you go to see Get Out in a theater full of not white people. Um, that it that absolutely changes the experience of watching this movie, I think. It's also just an excellent movie. It's very funny. It's very sharp social satire. Um, and it is legitimately scary in parts, but it's also very funny, which I appreciate because I like black humor, kind of like American Psycho um, mm-hmm. or Shaun of the Dead or something like that. I, you know, those sorts of movies I really like. Um but I do recommend Get Out because that was excellent. So try and go see it in a theater if you can while it's still while it's still out because I that's a great experience. So I think that's it. Uh, we can probably run on longer and longer uh, because this is our nature <laughs> to ramble when we're on. But I cannot uh, afford to do that at the moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, do send us uh, your questions. Uh, We'll continue these half-pint episodes when we get a chance until Mm -hmm. my book is turned in. And when we come back with full-length episodes, we will be doing the query critique that we mentioned before we went on hiatus. Yeah, we haven't forgotten about that. So there's still plenty of time for you guys to send in. We've received um, quite a few, but if you want to send in your query, we will certainly still accept them. So, um, yeah, once we come back full-time, we will definitely get to that. And that's it. That's all for this time. Okay, see you next time. Cheers. We did it. We did it. <laughs>